So I know there's this weird popping noise and I'm so sorry. I'm still learning how to use my microphone on this laptop because this laptop does not actually have a microphone in it. I'm not quite sure how that works, but anyway. So I know it's there. I'm sorry. I tried to get rid of it as much as I could. Hi everyone, welcome back to Rambling Reality, which apparently is going to be like a one month uh, episode podcast. I don't know, I haven't figured this out. Anyway, so this time I decided for Halloween to come up with something interesting. And one of my most creative endeavors in my entire life has been my imaginary best friend. And I wanted to do a little bit of research and see, you know, what other people were doing and, and you know, what psychology had said and all that kind of stuff too. But first, we're going to talk about my best friend. My best friend is probably the most awesome best friend anyone's ever heard of. Oh, by the way, pardon any, any bells. That's my cat. Okay, so my best friend was a shape-shifting chicken. No, really, seriously, a shape-shifting chicken. I created her in 1983, and I had never seen a shape-shifter, so I had no idea what made me come up with it. But Fifi, spelled F-I-F-I, but pronounced F-E-F-E, was... <laughs> My best friend, she used to live in the carpet. She used to, you know, stomp around as an elephant. You name it, she could do it. And when I say carpet, I mean that disastrous 1970s red shag carpet. I mean, primary red. Because I lived in a trailer growing up and it had been decorated back then. So I kind of had Fifi around. And I guess it was about one and a half or two when I created her. And she's named after my godmother's dog, childhood dog, I should say, named Fi-Fi. <laughs> I know, right? But like what a one and a half and two year old hears is not necessarily what is said. So Fifi was an amazing best friend. You could not ask for a better one in my opinion. She would run with me, she would play with me, she would play under the carpet, in the carpet, she would run around. Like I said, she became like an elephant all the time because I was enamored with elephants as a child. Well, elephants, orcas, dolphins, unicorns, and dragons. I loved Fifi. And then Fifi eventually grew up when I grew up. So she became a little bit older. So she started having, you know, a life outside of me even though we talked about it all the time. And Fifi's husband was named, dun dun dun, Dooley Whacker. <laughs> yes, he was named after having a dick. Because when I was little, my godmother used to say that a guy is Dooley Whacker or, you know, something about a guy's dick. And so he, that just became his name and it was short. Dooley was short. And so they had, I think... She had six million or nine million kids, but only three stayed like in the movie Charlotte's Web because I was old enough to love that movie. And I later read the book and, lo and loved it then, but I was too young for that at the time. And she had the three daughters stay and they were named after Christopher Columbus's ships, Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria. I don't know. I have no idea. This just amused me as a child, so I thought I should, you know, I was a very interesting child. Now, I played with them from about two to six. At the age of six, I started kindergarten. Anyone that has gone to kindergarten knows it's kind of hard to keep an imaginary best friend when you have other people in your class that look at you kind of funny when you talk to Fifi. Eventually, they died. First, Dooley died. By, yes, crossing the road. He crossed the road in front of my godmother, my elder godmother's home, 
And he didn't look both ways. And that's what happens. You go splat. I knew that. I was a pretty smart child for that. And then about, I don't know, I guess about four months later or so, Fifi died in the same way. But like Charlotte's Web, their three kids stayed until I kind of forgot about them. And I just, I used to love Fifi. Like, I don't remember playing with her that much, but I remember there are just snippets in my mind of remembering. I just, I love the idea of imaginary best friends and imaginary companions because I think they offer a lot of creativity and outlet for kids, you know? You hear kids playing with dolls and all kinds of stuff, and I had all kinds of dolls. I never got rid of Fifi because I had dolls. I had Mary, my pound puppy. It was actually Daisy from the original Pound Puppies run, but I named her Mary after my school bus driver, later school bus driver, but at the time just a neighbor. And I had Jessie, and Jessie was actually numbers one through four. We got her at some Christmas city. Um, I can't remember where it was, but it was in the 1980s. And I kept leaving her behind, so we kept having to go back and get another one because I was a spoiled child and my godmothers loved to spoil me. So we had those. And they all just kind of joined the party. So that was Fifi. And I wanted to do a little bit of research and see what other people had come about and see what people had learned. And I'm a nerd, but I'm a nerd without internet access at home. So I used Google Scholar and downloaded it onto my phone. And then I downloaded it to my computer and did some interesting, you know, observational stuff. And there was a study by Tracy R. Gleason, Raisel N. Girardi, and Jonathan M. Cheek, who said in their study that participants who reported imaginary companions scored higher than those who did not on measures of imagination, including imaginary use, hostile daydreams, and vivid nightmares, and on personality skills, including dependent interpersonal styles and international uh, internal state awareness. Okay. For the record, I'm going to have a link to all these studies. That I'm, I've got a couple of them in here. Noting this one right now because I have vivid night dreams like and nightmares. Like I, I dream in color. I've dreamt in color all my life. I can remember having a nightmare when I was like 10 or 11. And it was in the Looney Tunes style. But like I remember waking up and having like and seeing a hole in my stomach that like a polar bear had eaten through. It was very strange. But, like, that kind of vivid, vivid, you know, imagination and that kind of world is not new to me. And so it was kind of interesting to see that connection between imaginary friends and the kind of world that I lived in and, and how I used to see things. So kids with imaginary friends tend to create myths and world building, obviously. And typically this kind of difference levels out at around seven compared to the ones who are not you know, with imaginary friends who do not have that internal imagination button, I guess. Because, um, you know, around seven, you start to go to school, you have more socialization and the interplay between the various experience and background. So it kind of, the imaginary friend kind of, you know, goes away and it makes sense. And the study also notes in previous research, college age students, um, were more likely to believe in the paranormal or more esoteric beliefs when they, you know, grow up a little bit. And those that with higher levels of involvement, such as hearing their companions, displayed a higher level of imaginative involvement. So higher fantasy play tends to skew more imaginative skills in social settings, which just means you're a little bit more socially adaptable. You can kind of easily slide in and out, butterfly almost. And then also within their, per their research themselves, 
They found that participants with high involvement levels were more likely to engage in hostile daydreams, such as imagining taking revenge against a perceived slight. And that's not necessarily a, neg a negative thing. It's just the young women that used to have imaginary friends used the imagery while they were processing their anger. They used it to kind of see it, feel it, and let it go. And it kind of alleviated the anxiety and stuff with it. It also indicated that participants with imaginary friends tend to move towards harmony within a hierarchy, not looking to create a fuss. So they're more, again, adaptable. Like, they're not going to demand all the attention, and they're also not going to be completely passive. They're kind of going to be that middle guy or that middle woman. And they appear to develop a social orientation early on that includes cooperativeness and easy interactions with adults and little aggression in play, as well as concerns regarding meeting adults' expectations, which means they're a little bit more of a people pleaser, which makes a little bit of sense, because if your imaginary best friend is not real you got to please somebody like yourself. Um, introspection is also important, but not a reigning factor. Pretend play simply pushes an, an eternal awareness of any moment-to-moment -moment state of being. So, you know, they're more likely to know what's going on within themselves, but it doesn't necessarily mean, like, a deep introspection. It just means they're kind of looking around. And I think that's kind of important because, again, with, like, in the case of Fifi, for me, I loved Fifi. Fifi was everything. And... Fifi was kind of like my my playmate because I had playmates, but I mostly hung around, you know, grandparent age people. So I didn't have that social interaction with little kids that I normally would have gotten if I'd been around, you know, playgroups in my age or something like that. Another study with Denham, McKinley, Couchund, and Holt examined the emotional responses of preschool age kids typical age for imaginary companions. And while the study doesn't overly indicate the use of imaginary friends, Research indicated that high imaginative skills help navigate the social parameters within a group. Social adaptability. And it kind of creates those soft skills that, you know, people downplay, especially for women. But they're very vital in your day-to-day -day interactions and how you communicate within a social setting. Not just a, a group of friends, but just in social settings. Like even going to the marketplace or getting your tires fixed or going to work. You know, basic skill sets. And Francisco Pons, Paul L. Harris, and Pierre-Andre Doden note that emotional reads are possible for non-neurotypical thinkers. And I'm pointing this out because it's not necessarily an innate skill. So that emotional reads and an emotional availability and that emotional intelligence is not necessarily coming from someone that has a high imagination. It's something that it's part that and part learned. They also noticed that um, children who talk less about their emotional responses at two to three ages to continue that trend on the next stage of development, you know, when they're about six or seven, somewhere around there. And expressive children are able to read emotional cues and responses based on external criteria. The study was based in England for a very short and very small, I think it was about 30 kids. Many similar studies kind of indicated a common thread of how we interplay and stuff like that. So imaginary friends, people kind of mock kids when they have them, but they're actually really important in establishing boundaries and, you know, what they want to talk about, what they like. You know, it kind of allows children to play. That kind of feeds into the things that we see in pop culture all the time. Doctor Who had Amelia Pond, not Amy Pond, but the young younger Amelia Pond, 
who saw the raggedy man and thought he was like her imaginary friend because no one else could see him. When he showed up at her wedding, he was like, hi, I'm real. Amy was not wrong. You know, I'm, I'm very real. I'm very valid. And she was correct. And I think that's important too, because a lot of times we don't validate kids that have imaginary best friends, which is kind of silly and stupid in my opinion, because imaginary friends offer kids the ability to have that directed emotional state and in the case of like the young women who you know were able to direct their anger it kind of creates a, a a way of like siphoning off because kids are so aware of what's going on even if they don't understand what's going on they're aware of the emotional state of the people around them because that's the one thing they can read no matter what when they're kids and i think that's a really important aspect to kind of allow them to keep having and of course you have puff the magic dragon um, Pete's dragon, who, again, which was suggested by Sven, who has a clip coming at the end of this. Pete's dragon was was not fake. It wasn't like an imaginary friend, but it kind of encompassed that. You know, it had that same feeling, that same reality of no one else can see it. You know, no one else knows it's there until the dragon shows up. And of course, we all know Puff the Magic Dragon and stuff like that. But the one that means the most to me is Disney's Figment. So when I was little in the 80s, Figment was everywhere at Disney World. I loved Figment. And then they made him go away for like 20 something years. I was very displeased as a Disney person because I grew up going to Disney World all the time because it was a place that my godmother could take me at the age of, you know, three and four years old and keep me occupied for long periods of time. And she was in her 50s and her mother was like in her 70s at the time. So it kind of offered a, a space for us to kind of bond and keep an eye on me. In theory and practice, I just ran off whenever I wanted. I was a very, very willful child. But Figment was very important to me because he was like a dragon I could buy. And it wasn't like Maleficent, who I love. Do not get me wrong. And I love the the adaptation and Enchanted. But Figment was very much a part of my childhood. So I was really glad to see them bring him back. Other cases include that very short-lived show on sci-fi called Happy, which was like the most adult fucked up version of an imaginary friend ever because this little girl gets kidnapped and he and happy this imaginary unicorn like goes from person to person trying to get help and the only person that sees it is christopher maloney you know elliot stabler from svu like he's the only one that can see him and and he's like a corrupt cop and it was just a weird show i got through like the first episode and never went back but i'm bringing it up because it's kind of like interesting how it shows the how adults do not see the imaginary friends anymore and that kind of plays back into 1991's drop dead fred anybody remember that that was a seriously screwed up movie but i loved it when i was a preteen it's where the protagonist's mom um elizabeth her mom locks fred who drop dead fred who is you know elizabeth's imaginary friend and a jack-in-the-box and keeps him locked away for like what 20 years or something this huge amount of time and then when Elizabeth is going through a divorce and going through all this emotional turmoil, she moves back home and she opens the box and Fred appears again. And he, but he acts as like a line of childhood for Elizabeth because she's so serious and she's so doing so much. And so it, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of, you know, adult themes for her. And so it's interesting to watch her kind of move from this very passive, to this very like emotionally there person 
you know, someone who is not scared to be who she is. That would be Sunny. Sorry. Not Lobo. Different cat. Two bells. Same cat. Both sleeping on my bed because it's cold. Sorry. But, you know, Fred teaches her it's okay not to be passive. You can stand up for yourself. You can say what you need to say. You can be who you were as a kid. You can be just as aware, but still keep that strength. And it's okay to have the wrong reactions. It's okay not to be perfect. It's okay to not be perfect kid. And I think that that really is relevant because a lot of times we expect kids to be perfect. We expect them to have the perfect reactions. And then that to transition to be the perfect adult who, you know, never screws up, never does anything wrong, anything like that. And I think that it's a it's kind of a jacked up thing. And then my favorite scene in that entire movie is when you see Fred in the psychiatrist office with Elizabeth and all the other imaginary friends with their little kid. And you see like Fred talking to his friends or whatever. But from Elizabeth's perspective, all you see is Fred talking to air because you couldn't see each other's best friends or their imaginary friends because it's a personal manifestation. It's not someone else's. And I think that's a pretty good viewpoint of an imaginary friend. Even though the movie was panned highly, and somewhat rightfully so, because it's not the best movie, it just amused me. Because I was a very, again, strange child. It, it definitely seems relevant to the topic. Other shows and episodes include um, The Nanny, when Grace was transitioning out of grief from when her mother died, and Fran moved in. There's that period where her, her imaginary friend is no longer needed because she's got that mother figure back and that that ability to have someone close by all these things that she was missing because all she had was her older sister so it, it's very interesting to see that connection and when she dies they have a burial they properly give her that closure that she didn't necessarily get when her mom died because she was so little and i think that that's a really cool way of looking at it and then of course there's many of them but my final one of note is Foster's Home of Imaginary Friends, which was a place where old abandoned imaginary friends could find new kids to connect with, almost like a dating app. It's kind of like as the original ones transition, their best friends are going away, but they're going to need somebody. So why not find a home for them? Why not find a place for them? Because everybody should be wanted and needed. And I think that's a really strong message for kids. You can transition out, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be forgotten. And it's from the same guy that did uh, the Powerpuff Girls. This was more of my brother's generation than mine because I was born in 81. He was born in 90. He was much more into his area of, you know, Foster and like the big blue guy and all that like I vaguely remember watching it when he was a kid but it seemed to be an important element and now we're going to hear about Sven's imaginary friends because I didn't think anybody wanted to hear would want to hear me blah 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 all day long so he volunteered because well that's what fiancés do talk about his imaginary friends and what they meant to him and you know open up a little bit which I'm glad he did so we're going to listen to him now Hi, it's just me again. Little Sven. I'm doing a little guest spot on here because, as the case happens, when I was very, very little, I had some imaginary friends of my own. First, a little bit of setup. When I was very little, there were more children than rooms in the house, so I was sharing the bedroom with my parents. And in their bedroom, they had those big cabinets with mirrored doors, full length mirrors. And at some point, I noticed that if you open the doors just right, you have infinite reflections of yourself to your left and to your right. So what I did as a little kid was to um, 
imagine that those reflections are not actually reflections of me, but disguised aliens from space. And they were my friends, of course. What they wanted to do was to learn about Earth, at least as far as can, I can remember, and um, I would tell them how, about how everything in the world worked. I think that was a way for me to uh, work through my experiences, learning about the world myself, to um, say things out loud and review them and try to figure out the world for my very little self. I don't even remember how old I was when I had those imaginary friends or when I stopped having them, but I know it must have been, I think, well before I hit school. And I think they turned out to be a very useful tool for me to conceptualize and compartmentalize the world as I saw it at the time. And as such, I think it was actually pretty helpful and a good thing for a kid. That's who my imaginary friends were, my friends in the mirror. Okay, so usually I do a featured podcast at the end of every episode, right? But I'm going to do things a little bit different on this one. So instead of doing one podcast, I'm going to do about five different podcasts and an episode of each, or two depending on it, on what it is, um, where we talk about different things. And so you can talk about them and you can see kind of like where my interests lie. It's not necessarily with imaginary friends, but it's very Halloween-y and in, some of them can seem somewhat to be imaginary friends or that companion and that, that mental landscape world building. So first is one person's trash is our treasure, which is on Twitter at O-P-I-O-T, Opiot. And the episode that I'm going to mention is don't try to kill seven-year-olds if you're a good person. What is it featuring? My favorite movie by Hallmark ever. And that is Tenth Kingdom. Oh my god, I love Tenth Kingdom. I could probably wax poetic on, on this thing for like another ten hours, but I'm not going to. Which is as long as the show, so that makes sense. But I think it's you know, one of the best adaptations of real and magical realms clashing all at once. And I'm a sucker with anything with wolves in it, or wolf in this case. Uh, and anyone that's listened to Deconstructing Damsels this month knows that because all three of my episodes have featured werewolf, shifters, you know, that kind of thing. But my interest in wolf specifically is the fact that I think he was a very gray area, kind of a good anti-hero. And I think it really worked with her, I think his optimism and his kind of energy worked very well against her, you know, quiet, more cynical aspect. I think it really worked together. So don't say no to that. Seriously, best episodes ever. And then the other one I'm going to recommend for another one is The Feminist Critique which is that feminist critique without the E, and it's on Hocus Pocus, like the best Halloween movie, like actual Halloween movie ever. Like, no, Gremlins does not count. Gremlins is a Christmas movie, just saying. So is Gremlins too. I don't care what anybody says, they're the same thing. The Feminist Critique just released the Hocus Pocus episode. They just released the episode this week for Halloween, and I think everyone should at least have one podcast that talks about Hocus Pocus. 
So go listen to the girls talk about it and talk about if it's feminist or not. And then the next one is going to be For Better or Worse, which is at FBOW Pod. All these are on Twitter, by the way, because that's the only social media I really hang out at the most. And their episode is on Labyrinth. Like, how can you not talk about Labyrinth and Halloween? And Imaginary Friends. I mean, it's everything all rolled into one for this entire episode. And it's also the only time I've ever been attracted to David Bowie in my entire life. And I'm not quite sure why. I think it's basically he looks like the owl in real life. And no, I'm not attracted to owls. But for some reason, this just works for me. And I think it's because when I was a, like, a preteen, for some, whatever reason, it really worked. I don't know. I just go with it. But the episode is great. It's funny. It's hilarious. You know, you get to hear all about how much Labyrinth means and Jim Henson means. And I've talked to the to them on Twitter about it. And it's just, it's hilarious. So it's a husband and wife team on this one. Generally, I listen to Friends, but I think the husband and wife really works, in, especially in this one. So give them a listen too. And then there's Pouch Potatoes, which is at Pouch Pod. And they're an Aussie team. They're an Aussie group of friends who are also in the film industry. And so they've only got like two episodes up right now, but they were there was another previous podcast. But of the two they've got up now, I can't actually talk about, about the Badoo. I think that's how you say it. I don't know because I don't watch horror films because Vivid Dreams. No, um... So I'm going to talk about their other movie that I think you should watch because it's Crocodile Dundee. As Aussies, it'd be very interesting to listen to their viewpoint. But also, I mean, it's like the unfettered satire on Halloween. Like, it's like watching, like, reverse cosplay. I don't know. It's a thing. And listen to it. And then finally, we've got Heathing Bosoms, which is a romance book podcast and they're found at heaving underscore bosoms and the episode they have a whole bunch actually i could have chosen but i picked how to flirt with a naked werewolf because a i read the book when it first came out and it's by molly harper and it's brilliantly funny it's kind of in the line of a rom-com but listening to them talk about it is hilarious listening to aaron and melody it just it, it's hilarious because they just kind of bing bong boom all over the place and it's about a rom-com with surly werewolves in alaska which is good because aaron lives in alaska anyway it's hilarious there's two episodes of it so you should totally listen to it so those are my recommendations for this episode. Listen to those five episodes of different podcasts that kind of feature this whole world. Okay, in a recap today, we have discussed Imaginary Friends, My Batshit Crazy Memory, and Reality of Head. I mean, shape-shifting chicken. That's not normal. We've talked about Sven's Imaginary Friends. We've done research, and I've recommended, like, podcast episodes. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully, I'll be back before a month from now. I don't know. It just depends on my schedule, and Deconstructing Damsels takes a lot of my time because I have to read and then I have to review and it, it takes a little bit of time to do the work. But I'm hoping you guys enjoy the Imaginary Friends episode. And please, please go do something fun today. It's Halloween. Go do something fun. No, that doesn't include throwing eggs at houses. No, not even if they're hard-boiled or soft-boiled. It doesn't matter. No. Just, you know, go do something fun and unexpected today because Halloween is the day for joy. It's what I've learned from my partner anyway. Here is today's lesson. If a kid has an imaginary friend, give them a pat on the back 
If it's a woman, give them a really big pat on the back. Give the, the imaginary friend a high five. Don't sit on them. Don't step on them like my parents did. And enjoy the fact that your kid has got a creative mind. They've got an outlet that makes them happy. And they're not Sid from the Toy Story. Thanks, guys. Bye. 